Jesus, this is this service is for you. This is for your glory. So uh, we just pray that you just take uh, this whole service and put it toward whatever you want. Thank you that this topic is about you. Uh, just be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so it's a good thing that we are ending on this question. Uh, Jesus is God. That's, a, that's not a typical question that you start a conversation with a non-believer with. And so I'm really glad that we're ending this series with this question. Um, and before somebody can ever come to the conclusion that Jesus is, is God, they first have to um, be okay and open to the idea that there even is a God. And so if you missed the very first uh, sermon in this series, Jeremy covered that. And he cut you did a really good job of explaining the reasonableness of why there probably is a God and why it makes sense that this universe is being controlled and, and operated by somebody who cares about us and who's got a great plan. So apologetics is something I'm really excited about, I like. Uh, I think for apologetics, my view kind of on apologetics is the same as um, a lot of people who view apologetics and it's kind of the same as when the Enlightenment period happened and science started to really take off. The reason it did is because people were excited about God and if this is a God who created the world, then let's look at as much as we can into this universe that we have and we'll see God's glory. And I think sometimes when we look uh, into Christianity, into apologetics, what we're doing is we're taking Christianity and we're letting other fields shine on it and say, when Christianity intersects with another field, where, where does Christianity come out on this? And, and we've shown through this series that uh, when Christianity meets up with other fields, that it is bang on. And so right now I just want to read uh, Hebrews 11, verse 1. So this is a popular verse. I want to read it in the NASB, and there's two different ways it can be translated. And the first one, first one says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Another way it can be translated is, Now faith is the substance of things expected, and the evidence of things not seen. And so we believe that our faith, it, sometimes it does take um, a little bit of us, uh, if we don't understand something, to just believe in it, but it doesn't mean that our faith is a blind faith. It's a faith that is meant to be investigated, a faith that is meant to be looked into. Uh, Christianity and apologetics is supposed to be first an assurance of our faith, and then it becomes a defense of our faith. If God is real, and if all of this Christianity is real, then we should expect it to find it lining up with other fields of reality. And so we should be okay, we shouldn't be afraid to, um, to look into things and maybe Christianity will be shown to be a fraud. That, that's not the case. We should be okay investigating and looking deep into these things. Uh, and, and when we do, and we really find answers that are reasonable, we see that Christianity is a reasonable thing. So I think for this question, is Jesus God? Who is Jesus? What did Jesus come to accomplish? the best way that we can look in that is history. Let history bear down upon Christianity and on the Gospels. And what is the, the Gospels really, what are they saying, and can they be trusted? And before I do that, I want to just take a couple minutes, and I want to just make it clear that, uh, that what the New Testament's picture of Jesus is, and this is more of an in-house thing that we want to do right now, and we just want to look at what Christians believe, what the New Testament really teaches about who Jesus is. Uh, so the New Testament does teach that Jesus is fully God and he's fully man. And I want to go through uh, quickly a bunch of verses really quick. 
and I want to talk about that, and I just want to rest that assured right now before we get into the apologetic side of things. So I'm going to go through a bunch of verses here. I'm going to just be machine gunning this here. So uh, Colossians 1:19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Uh, Colossians 2, uh, verse 9, same, same book. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Philippians 2, it says, Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality God something to be used to his own advantage. What else have we got here? We got Hebrews. Hebrews 1, verse 3. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Titus 2, verse 3, 13 and 14 says, while we, are, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify himself, purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. And there's many other verses here that are they're explicit that just straight up say Jesus is God. But I want to look at some implicit verses quickly. Um, can we just, there's a, Isaiah 42, verse 8. It says, I am the Lord and that is my name. I will not give my glory to anyone else nor share my praise with carved idols. So we have a picture in the Old Testament of God coming and showing who he is to his people and saying, I want to know you. I want to be your God. I'm the only thing that sustains you, redeems you, gives you a source of life. And by the time we get to Isaiah, the people have turned away from God and they're doing their own thing. And so Isaiah is, Isaiah is a beautiful book of God wrestling with his people and saying, stripping away all the falsehoods and saying, I'm the only thing that you guys need. And Isaiah has a lot of verses like this. And so when we see in the New Testament so much focus on who Jesus is, those things are a testimony even more than these verses we just looked at. I want to look at some of this other stuff in a second, but it's, it's just Jesus is the main character of the New Testament. He is not just a servant of God who does God's will like Moses or David. He is the center stage throughout the whole New Testament. So, um, I just want uh, to look at a video here. We're going to just take a look at it. We're gonna, and then I'm going to kind of break it down a little bit. And then I want to look at other sections of the New Testament that talk about who Jesus is. Well, uh, the treatment of Jesus as, um, in some sense, associated with God in some kind of special way seems to be there in the earliest evidence that we have. Um, if we, the earliest evidence that we have of this is uh, in the letters of Paul, which take us back to within about 20 years or so of Jesus' death. And in those letters, it's already taken for granted. It's uncontroversial and presumed that uh, between Paul and his churches that this sort of... Um, invoking Jesus uh, in worship, uh, pronouncing his name over the baptized as if it has some kind of powerful effect upon them, the use of Jesus' name in, uh, in uh, healings and exorcisms and so on. This, this sort of thing all seems to be taken for granted uh, in, in the earliest evidence. So um, uh, it, it, it appears to me that it happens so early that it's, it's earlier than any of our extant evidence. Uh, one would be a safe way to put it, or a conservative way to put it, I mean in terms of scholarly conservatism. If you wanted to be a bit more daring, you could say that uh, it, it perhaps happens within the earliest uh, weeks or months uh, after Jesus' death, but we don't have evidence for that period, but it's perfectly congruent with that kind of suggestion. The reason I 
Well, I think there's a constellation of practices that I've talked about in a number of um, publications. I've mentioned some of them already. Uh, the fact that uh, the initiation rite is marked by, by the uh, ritual liturgical use of Jesus' name as, as if it carries some kind of power. So baptizing in the name of Jesus. Um, you have nothing really comparable to that. You don't baptize Jewish proselytes in the name of Moses or Abraham, for example. Um, uh, and, and so Jesus is functioning clearly in some unprecedented kind of way. The, the, um, the common meal, the, the sacred meal, the, the Eucharistic meal, uh, understood as a meal where Jesus in some sense presides or is present or, or it's done in his name. Again, we really don't have an analogy for that. We have common meals, sacred meals at Qumran and elsewhere, but so far as we know, none of them are ever um, done with reference to a figure like the teacher of righteousness or David or Moses or Michael or any of these figures uh, in the way in which Jesus features in their sacred meal. Um, I've mentioned the use of Jesus' name in such things as uh, healing and so on. Um, hymns uh, are a very crucial thing. Early Christian worship seems to have been characterized by, the, by hymns, and the earliest hymns that we can identify, that scholars commonly think they can identify, it's interesting, all have to do with the figure of Jesus. They all celebrate him, um, and although the hymns may well have been sung to God in his honor, they all concern him putting uh, the, the, the kind of uh, valorization of him or veneration of him right at the center of their of their devotional practice. So in these and other ways, it seems to me we have a whole, what I've described as a devotional pattern of venerative practices that, um, that clearly are, are not, I think, uh, paralleled in, in typical Jewish piety of the time and that seem to me to signal uh, a very definite uh, divine status of some sort uh, that he's... Okay, so that guy is a little heady, but uh, that's a... <laughs> That's a university professor that is, uh, he just spends all his time looking at the historical Jesus and uh, who Jesus was and where Jesus um, received glory from. And, and so what he's trying to say, I think, just to break it down, is that in, if you look through the whole New Testament, Jesus, the, Jesus is on every single page pretty much. He's the center of stage of it. And in the early Christian church, as it is emerging as a new community, all the most important things Jesus is in the center of. So when you become baptized and you join the community, you have to do it in Jesus' name. When you um, take communion and remember what happened, that's all for Jesus and it's Jesus' sake. And there's just so many things that we see throughout the whole New Testament that he's always in the middle of everything. So I think that's even a bigger testimony than just the explicit verses about this. Um, I, I want to go through how did Jesus share the glory with the Father? And that Isaiah verse that we looked at earlier, um, it, it, this stands, if Jesus is not God, this is, things have gone, they've derailed completely by the time they hit the New Testament. If, this, if Jesus isn't who he says he is, um, they've made a huge mistake here, and the early Christian church have gone in a completely different direction. And so I want to look quickly at three things, uh, titles, rule, and worship in, used in the New Testament. Um, God as being the only Savior in Isaiah and throughout the whole Testament, God says that He's the only Savior. I don't want you to depend on anybody else except for me. I don't want you to look to anybody else except for me. And throughout the whole New Testament, Jesus isn't just an agent for God, but He is the Savior. Uh, we also have God saying He's the first and He's the last, and besides me there is no other God. In the beginning of Revelation, Jesus reiterates that same thing. 
And in the same chapter, uh, it talks about God being the Alpha and Omega. And in the book, Revelation ends with Jesus saying that he is the Alpha and Omega. And it's almost like a bookend, the beginning and the end, Alpha and Omega. And Jesus is saying, I hold this whole thing together, this whole story, this whole book of Revelation. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. Uh, the word Lord, uh, a lot of people uh, in the first century, they read a Greek Old Testament, and the word Lord was used to translate for God. And when they decided to write the New Testament, they just took that and they just shifted it straight across, and they just started using that term for, for Jesus, and didn't even think, they didn't even bat an eye about it. So there's uh, just the titles alone. Uh, we can go to Rule. Jesus shares the middle of the throne with his Father in Revelation 5. In the Great Commission, Matthew 28, he says, All power and dominion have been given to me. Colossians 1, for about 15 verses, it talks about Jesus being supreme over all things and nothing standing in his way, and him being the ruler of all things, and everything was created for him and by him for his glory and for his sake. First uh, Timothy 6, verse 13 and 15, this looks a lot like what we see in the Old Testament referring to, to, to God placed on Jesus. And it says, Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in inapproachable light, whom no one has seen, has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Worship. Throughout the whole uh, the Gospels, and when Jesus meets people in visions in Acts, he receives worship, and he's okay with that. And uh, Revelation 5, every, all the angels are worshiping the Father, and Jesus comes into the throne room, and they all start to worship him, and they, they sing songs, and he stands in the middle of the throne room, and God seems to be okay with that, the Father. So there, it's throughout the, most of the, God, um, the New Testament, and we haven't even got into the Gospels yet. I just want to look at John quickly. Um, John has seven I am statements. And uh, there's a slide for that, I, I think. Maybe it's not on there, I don't know. <laughs> there's, seven, there's seven I am statements that Jesus makes. And Jesus is taking center stage here. And he is reiterating that he is the center of life. He is the, he's the source of what these people are looking for. Uh, he doesn't shy away from putting himself... Um, in that spot, and he says phrases like, I and the Father are one. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So John is super, super blatant about this. And uh, some people are going to say Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the actual ones. John is kind of something that's been written after, and it's all theological. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they say that Jesus is God too, but they say it in their own little way. I just want to check the time here. Yeah, we're okay, we're doing okay. <laughs> um, it's more implicit in uh, the synoptic gospels but it does say things like the beginning of Matthew it says he will be called Emmanuel God with us and that's, that's kind of a, a callback to what happened in Exodus where God came to be with his people in Sinai to live among them to tabernacle among them and come down from the mountain and live with them among his people and that's, that's what Matthew is kind of painting that picture the beginning of Luke, uh, Jesus, there's a quote where Jesus gets up in the synagogue and he reads from Isaiah and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Uh, to, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. And that whole, that whole um, 
quote he does. Then he says right after, he says, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And if you go back and you read Isaiah 61, where this is coming from, this is all talking about the day of the Lord, when God comes to visit this world and to make things right. And Jesus is saying, today this is being fulfilled in your hearing. And so Jesus is taking things that are attributed to God in the Old Testament, and he's putting them on himself. And throughout the rest of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus does things that we don't always pick up on, but these are actually things that God said he would himself personally do in the Old Testament. Jesus begins to do in the Gospels. Um, another thing is Jesus calls himself the Son of Man in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And somebody could look at that and say, John's all about Jesus being the Son of God. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, yeah, he's just the Son of Man. He's just a, a human being like the rest of us. Uh, but that's a loaded term, Son of Man. I just want to quickly read. Sorry, I'm going pretty fast here. I got lots of stuff. Uh, Daniel 7, 13 and 14. This is where Jesus is getting this idea from. He, uh, just check this out if you can on your own. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was like a son of man coming in with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And uh, Revelation 5, it kind of reiterates this exact same thing, this exact scene. It puts it again in Revelation 5, and it's kind of like a deja vu of the same thing. And so Jesus is taking this nickname, and he's putting it on himself, and there's a lot, there's a, there's a lot of stuff going on when he says, um, when the Son of Man comes, when the Son of Man suffers, uh, the Son of Man, and he uses that, and people know exactly what he's talking about. And that's kind of been lost because we don't see culturally the way they do. So that's kind of just like a little snidbit that we could talk for a long time about the New Testament and what it says about Jesus. But that, those are just some verses just for us to know that it's very clear. It's not, it's not a maybe in the New Testament. This is the picture that is presented to us. And we even got into things like if Jesus died on the cross and he's not God, how does that work? Like all of Hebrews in the book of Romans doesn't work if he's not. But that's, that's um, a whole other sermon. Um, and so we come to the point in this message now where we look and we say, this is what we believe, but how do we take this and apply this? And how do we take this and share it with somebody who doesn't even believe that this is all real? And so the Gospels were written for us to believe. That's the intent why they wrote them, is so that we would read them and we would come face to face with this person named Jesus, uh, that we would come and... Uh, we would accept him for who he's presenting himself to be and, and having our life transformed. And so for, in order for that to happen, when we talk to a non-believer, they have to at least give the Gospels a chance to be credible. So I want to quickly just, Chris has done this a little bit really well in his sermon. I want to kind of do this again. Um, but I want to just kind of hone in a couple, on a couple objections that people have uh, to the Gospels. And I, I'm not going to, this is just an iceberg thing, tip of the iceberg. There's way more we could talk about here, but we don't have hours and hours. But I just want to go through four common objections that you see. If you watch an apologetics video or if you watch a video about Jesus being God, you're going to have all the comments below and all the people trolling and stuff like that. 
a lot of these things are going to come up, and a lot of atheists are going to say these things, and I want to address these because these aren't just pat answers I want to give here. So the first one, why are there contradictions in the gospel accounts? If they can't get little details right, why can we trust them on the big details? And so there's, there's lots. I'm going to go through just one, and then I'm going to talk about other ones, and there are answers to those two that are reasonable answers. Uh, one is that, one that I want to kind of hone in right now is Jesus in John and Jesus in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and when Jesus dies. So in John, Jesus, they have Jesus dying at the same time that the Passover lamb is killed in that ceremony. So like, uh, Jesus is killed during the Passover feast. Matthew, Mark, and Luke say that when Jesus has the Last Supper, that's actually... Um, that's when the Passover feast, that's when the lamb is being slaughtered at the same time. So somebody's going to look at that and they can say, you guys can't get the little details figured out. Maybe Jesus never died on the cross. Maybe he didn't even go in a tomb. Maybe you guys, maybe he just ran off into the sunset and then the next thing he's resurrected from the dead. So this is a, this isn't a, this is a, con this is a contradiction that people see. And what I want you to know is that when the gospels are written, they're not written as in a CNN report and somebody else is from NBC or MS. And it's, it is not like that. The Gospels take things and they frame them to teach us things. So John writes his, his Gospel probably 20 years after Mark. So it's not that Mark is unaware or John is unaware of Mark and he's like, oh no, uh, I, gotta get, I gotta talk to my publisher before these things hit Indigo. It's, it's more like what is happening here is he's aware of what's happening. He's trying to make a theological statement. So there's a very good answer for this. It is most likely that, that the lambs were killed when Matthew, Mark, and Luke say they were. And that the Last Supper, when that is happening, is when the lambs are killed. But Jesus, John is making a theological statement by saying Jesus is dying at the same time as the lamb. In the beginning of John, Jesus John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And this is right in the beginning of the book of John. And for the rest of John, Jesus is, is portrayed as this. And it is, is hinted throughout the whole way through in a way that the other Gospels don't address. So John is purposely taking this and framing this in a, a specific purpose. Uh, same with if you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, there'll be teachings about Jesus. So Matthew will take it and he'll put it in five different sections, all the main teachings of Jesus. And most likely they didn't happen in five sections like that, but Matthew is framing that in five sections to be like the new Moses. It's like um, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. And that's what Matthew chooses to frame it like that. And, and so people will look and they'll say, what a contradiction. Uh, you guys can't even get the little details right. Jesus didn't talk about it then. He talked about it earlier. And that's not the point. We can't look at this as if this was a, uh, a reporter saying, I want to chronologically put the whole thing through like that. People read these things, and they knew that that's not what the author's intent was. So that's just something that uh, we could get into way more on, on that topic. But it's just the, the gospel account, uh, the contradictions that people see, they don't understand that these have been written and framed in a certain way to teach us about Jesus. Another, another um, objection that people has, have is how can we trust that the authors got their stories straight? Didn't they just write this stuff down like hundreds of years later? Like didn't, 
Uh, didn't Jesus just grow as a legend in these people's eyes? Like he was just some teacher. And then uh, next thing you know, it's five or 600 years later and the, the Pope is running. The Roman Empire has now become the Christian Empire and they've they got to create a humble backstory. Is that what's really going on? And so there's, a, there's an atheist history guy who's really into the historical Jesus and he says like, let's just play the game of telephone and see what happens. So if I tell Jeremy something, by the time it gets all the way back to the media board, it's probably gonna be a different message. And he's saying, he, he gives us credit and he says, this, this historian, he says, yeah, Mark was written about 40 years after Jesus died and was raised from the dead, but a lot can happen in 40 years. The story could have gone completely different direction. And so this is, a, this is a common objection people have to this. First thing I wanna say is that a lot of what we have in history about the Romans and battles and different things like that wasn't written, uh, it wasn't recorded within the lifetime of when it happened. It happened, a lot of those stories happened hundreds of years before, and yet they're in our history books. And if you are in a history class, you're gonna be reading about Roman battles and Roman wars that happened hundreds of years earlier or accounts about certain generals or certain kings, they're not within the lifetime, and yet the Gospels are. Another thing is oral culture versus written culture. And this is really important when we do apologetics is to, to take off our lens, because we have a lens and we think that we are so unbiased in the 21st century and we got it figured out, and these are backwards primitive people, but we need to actually take off the lens that we have and the biases that we have when we look at things like this. Oral culture, I want to just do a quick excerpt. There's a, there was a Roman master and he had a slave and they took him to an auction. And he said, your duty for the day is to record this whole auction in your mind. So I need to know who bought what, how much they paid for it and when they bought it. And at the end of the day, um, the master looked at the slave. They have this all documented, I can show you. Um, he looked at him and he said, I need you to recite this all back to me. And he had almost like an Excel spreadsheet in his head. And this is a, an amazing gift. Obviously this guy was, um, this slave was trained to do this. But what we need to understand is an oral culture like that back then, um, they don't live in an information overload like we do. So what am I trying to say by that is, now I don't even remember if I have to have an appointment next Thursday, but my Google calendars tells me on my phone. If I forget an important fact, Wikipedia is there. I didn't watch the Royal Wedding and I didn't watch the Stanley Cup playoffs, but it doesn't matter because I can find them on the internet. And so I don't even remember my, like my wife's phone number, but it's on my contact info. But I remember my phone number from when I was seven. And so our culture, we are living in a period of information overload and the more information we have, the less valuable it actually becomes because it, we don't have to work for it, we don't have to attain it. And in a world like that, this isn't, just, this isn't just Jewish people, this is the whole ancient world and actually if you talk to people from Africa too, um, who live in an oral culture, the ability to retain information that you know will, you'll never see again if you don't retain it properly, the value people place on this is significant. And we haven't even got into what the Jewish people were known for for being the most stringent and the most detailed with manuscripts and copying things down. And they, most, most Jewish people by the age of 12 had um, the first five books of the Bible memorized. And so it, that's, that's a whole different topic as well, but we need to take off our lens when we look into things that are historical like this, and we need to look at them 
um, from an unbiased position, because we do have a bias in our modern world. Uh, the third one, and these are, these are just snippets, like there's way more information about all this as well, but didn't the authors write these accounts as if they were legends anyways? You know, we got miracles and we got some weird stuff in here. Do you think that the authors really believed it literally happened? This is a question that I've had um, asked to me before. Like nobody believes in Zeus, nobody believes in Thor, nobody believes in the God of Odin. The Christians had their own, why don't you guys just give it up? Like, you guys can take the principles, but can't you guys just drop the God stuff? And so like, this is a, this is a good question. Sometimes these are questions people have and they're real barriers to faith. But I think um, this is where history really is an ally to us. If you look at the way that the Gospels are framed, the Gospels are not framed to be in the myth genre. So we have lots of accounts of Greek and Roman mythology and the way that they're set up and the framework and how a story goes and then all of a sudden you got a, a section of uh, like a dialogue or a speech and it goes down and it changes and the way characters are introduced. And the Gospels fit into Greco-Roman biographies. And there are miracles, but we believe that they really happened. We didn't believe Caesar is a miracle worker. But if you, if you take a gospel account like Matthew or Mark, and if you put it beside a Roman biography and you follow the parallels, and you follow that across with like the life of Julius Caesar, you're going to see patterns in the styles of format that you're not going to see if you take um, the gospels and you put it beside the story of Hercules. And for us... Maybe we're going to look and we just say, like, I, I, say you read the, the biography of Barack Obama or Nelson Mandela or something. We're going to look at what a biography looks like now. And we're going to look at the Gospels and say, these don't seem the same. But they, they, it's a totally different world that they're living in. And we have to understand the genre that they are writing in back then. So another thing, just I maybe shouldn't get into too much, but... Real places, real names, names like Judas and Mary and Thomas, they're popular names that are used in the Gospels. So they didn't have, old, they didn't have last names in the, gospel, in the Gospels, but Mary's used, I think, three different times, and they always have to put where she's from or the mother of or Mary that did this or Mary did that, and they ran metrics. They have archaeology on this, and they've run metrics on it, and the most popular names... Uh, in, the, in the Gospels are the ones that we have. And those are the names where they have to put a kind of disclaimer or dis a description beside that person's name because they're too popular and you get mixed up between the two or three or four different Marys. The last objection I want to tackle is, did the early Christians borrow from pagan myths? Uh, specifically, I want to just tackle like when Jesus died and he rose from the dead. What's really going on here? Is this just a recycled Egyptian thing? Or a Greek god? Or... Is this just like um, Judaism went to the religious buffet of the Roman Empire and just grabbed what they liked and then they made a new hero? Is that what's really going on? And so there are, there are um, gods who die and they're raised again and stuff like that that we see in, that old, in those old mythologies. People are going to look at that and they say that it's the exact same. But what we don't see is that Jewish people are so zealous and so ethnocentric in, their, in, their, in the first century that they are not willing at all to, to even like compromise or to accept other cultures. And it was, it was known as a real trouble place for the Romans. The Romans had to come in there and crush riots so often because they, they had to deal with 
people who weren't willing to accept other cultures or other religions. Uh, one example I just want to quickly give is Pilate. He was, the, he was kind of the leader of that area. When he first came into power, he wanted to impress Caesar. So at night, he goes and puts up a whole bunch of statues of Caesar in the whole city in Jerusalem. Uh, the next day, everybody gets up and they're like, what is this? And a huge crowd of people march 120 kilometers that day down to the capital city. And they're pretty much doing a giant protest. And this guy gets, Pilate gets so choked, he's like, he grabs a legion, like a big army, and he says, like, kill all these people right now. And like, you, you go back to your city and you listen to me or I'll kill you. And then all the people went and they laid down on the pavement and they pulled their, their shirts back like this and they said, you can kill us right now, cut our heads off. We'd rather die right now than go back to our city and have a graven image in our city. And so Pilate knew at that point that he had a big mess on his hands and he had to walk on eggshells. And you see that in the Gospels later, that he's really politically trying to jump around. And so it's super, super highly unlikely if Christianity came from Jewish people that they're going to be throwing in a bunch of stuff about Egyptians and about Greeks and taking cultures that they don't really have anything to do with or want to have anything to do with. So there are, there, even, even these questions, there's more answers to all of these, but we don't have time today to jump into all of them. But what I want that to do is just, just to kind of be a primer that the more we look into these things, if we see something in the Gospels that, that we're having a hard time with, um, don't just put that to rest, but go and look for the answer because there are reasonable answers out there with history and their archeology. span I know sometimes Christians, we, can, we don't always know the answer. I was talking to Jeremy about this today. That sometimes we don't know the answer and we just gotta get something out there. And that's not always the best approach. Maybe the best approach is to just really say, I don't know. That's a good question I've never even thought about before. I wanna look into that. And take the time to look into it because you'd be surprised at how, how well this stuff really stacks up. This question, is Jesus God and who is Jesus, really is the most important question that we can ask ourselves in the, a journey that we need to go on. Um, this question, it has implications for the rest of our life in a way that a lot of other questions do not. So for us, we need, we need to really look into this and say, every time I read the Gospels and I come up to something that um, I've never thought about before, we need to look into these things. I want to just end this, this talk kind of uh, with a famous quote from C.S. Lewis. And he talks about what he thinks about if Jesus is God. So he's saying... I'm trying, he, he talked with a lot of people in universities and stuff like that, and a lot of people in the Royal Air Force, and he said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, 
And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. And so we've all had our lives changed by God, and we've met with Jesus, the person who can come and transform us from the inside out. And sometimes people have real objections, and we need to help them work through these things so that they can meet Jesus straight face to face. And that's all, that's all, that's all we can do. And that's all we want to do is bring them to him, show them the living God, the way that the lady did in John 4 when um, Jesus talked with her and she brought the whole village back and said, meet this guy. This guy has said things to me I've never ever heard or thought of before. And that is our only, that is our only hope and our only role with apologetics is to look at somebody and if they have an objections, to remove barriers so they can meet with the real Jesus. So I just want to invite the, the worship team up and I just want to, um, I just want to pray here. Uh, Jesus, you've made it so clear who you are. Uh, you've uh, spoken to us in history and you had faithful people who wrote down so that we may believe. I just pray that you just clear that up in our hearts, who you are and the power that you have to tra transform our lives, to be our Lord. I just pray that you give us courage um, to investigate these things and not to be afraid that Christianity is going to come up short, but to really look into it. And also just courage to show people that this is a reasonable thing. Uh, that the God of this universe is standing at the door wanting to, to talk to them and to know them and to be um, the person that transforms them. And I just pray that you'll just help us to show people that this is credible and there's a God who is waiting for them. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen.